0: You know, I've had the uh, great luck and opportunity to work with some some fascinating people in in public policy and elective office. And uh, I was asked on a radio show which of all those people was the most interesting. And I I didn't have to even think about it. Uh, With quick reflex, I said Charlie Wilson. Uh, And Charlie Wilson is the former congressman from East Texas about whom they made the movie Charlie Wilson's War who was a just unbelievable character. And uh, he'd had, over the years, constant problems with women, with booze, with drugs, all kinds. He was a a primary uh, featured persona in the Czech kiting scandal and all all kinds of things. But he was a a great larger than life character and and a terrific public servant. Despite all that he, he was uh, always rated number one in constituent services and but uh, but every campaign he was the number one target to be taken down by the party because he had all those problems and every time it looked like it was just going to be impossible to get him reelected voracious campaigner and, and knew his district so well and and always ma- we always managed some way to survive by the skin of skin of our teeth, but the last campaign. Uh, and there have been, uh, you know, the usual problems. And he sat us down before the campaign. And we got the campaign team together over in East Texas, and some hamburger joint. And, and he had this big, moment, voice. He said, I just want to tell you, boys, things have changed. Things have changed. Yeah, I met a girl, good Baptist girl. She plays the piano down at the, at the church. And uh, God-fearing woman. She doesn't drink. She doesn't smoke. She's completely changed me. I just want to tell you, I've turned over a new leaf, and uh, we're thinking about settling down and getting married, just as soon as she graduates from high school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! <laughs> here. here we go again. Ah, <laughs> uh, it was fun.
0: Um, the so the fun thing about Charlie and and the fun thing about American politics, just generally speaking, is is how often we are surprised uh, by this thing we call democracy that that allows, you know, true expression of our passions and our beliefs. And I'm constantly amazed in my 30 years of politics how often the conventional wisdom gets turned on its ear. Barack Obama was a great example of that. Uh, Just when we think we've got it figured out, Things change, and sometimes dramatically. And this election cycle is uh, a particular case in point. Um, and so, let me just tee this up for the discussion to give you a little bit of a video overview of some of the things that we've been seeing this election cycle, because I think it it uh, provides in sharp relief just the sort of things we're dealing with this time.
2: We need to turn the lights off.
0: It'd help. Sure.
2: Could you get? Listen up. Big night for the Tea Party. They have won a race in New York, maybe in New Hampshire, and this huge upset upset in the state of Delaware.
3: The Tea Party is the future of politics.
0: As I said, this is not your father's Republican Party.
2: This is a different brand.
0: U.S. economy takes another big hit. These are brand new numbers showing that employers shed ninety-five thousand jobs last month.
2: More spending. More debt,
0: more Washington takeovers. We don't want to go back to
2: the same policies and the same practices that drove our economy into a ditch.
3: How do you inspire the base that helped propel you into office? We can't let this country fall backwards
4: because the rest of us didn't care enough to fight. The stakes are too high for our country and for your future. Groups that receive foreign money
2: are spending huge sums to influence American Let's talk about the President's
0: evidence for the accusation that the Chamber of Commerce and American Crossroads had foreign donors. It is nada, no evidence whatsoever.
2: There's mourning in America. Under the leadership of President Obama, our country is fading and weaker and worse off.
0: Barack Obama is the worst
1: president in history.
4: This boat's taking on a lot of water.
2: Hit him with the stimulus.
4: <laughs> hey, mister, you're gonna sink this boat.
2: Better bail faster, Billy. You've heard about Sharon Angle's extreme juice in Washington.
4: I have juice with dement. Political juice.
5: Introducing Sharon Angle's crazy juice.
3: Made with real dement. Mike, 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 Weston, working hard for you.
1: I'm one of your middle class Americans, and quite frankly, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted of defending you, defending your administration, right. defending the mantle of change that I voted for, right. and deeply disappointed with where we are right now. <laughs> so what? Who's she? I am a chief financial officer for a veteran service organization. I'm also a mother. I'm a wife. I'm an American veteran.
3: American scientific companies are crossbreeding humans and animals and coming up with with mice with fully functioning human brain. Evolution is a myth. Why aren't monkeys still evolving into humans? I dabbled into witchcraft. I never joined a coven. I'm not a witch. I'm nothing you've heard. I'm you. And just like you, I have to constantly deny that I'm a witch.
2: Arizona, where Republican Governor Jan Brewer met her Democratic opponent for a televised debate. Let's watch her opening statement. Thank you all for watching us
5: tonight. I have uh, done so much, and I just cannot believe that we have changed everything since I've become your governor in the last 600 days. Arizona has been brought back from its abyss. We have done everything that we could possibly do. <laughs> <laughs> we have, um, did what was right for Arizona. <laughs> How
2: are, you? How are
1: you? Do you fully support
2: hey. the Obama agenda? Who are you? Who are you? Whoa, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Oh. Whoa, who are you? I'm here for a project, sir. me who are you are. Who are you? Congress, sir, 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 you? please. Don't tase me, bro.
4: <laughs> there is a new rising star among the ranks of the Republican Party. He is the would be candidate for treasurer of Stark County, Ohio. His name is Phil Davison, and he is not apologizing for his tone tonight. My name is Phil Davison. And I am seeking our party's nomination for the position of Stark County Treasurer. Albert Einstein issued one of my most favorite quotes in the history of the spoken word. And it is as follows. In the middle of opportunity. Excuse me, in the middle of difficulty <laughs> lies opportunity. I'm going to repeat that so I have clarity tonight. In the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. If nominated tonight, I promise each and every person in this room, I will hit the ground running, come out swinging, and end up winning. So we only know this. Somehow he lost.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that that just gives you an idea of the kind of electoral stew that we're in the middle of here. (laughs) Um, The... uh, All of this really began with, uh, in many ways, with Scott Brown, Uh, you know, that was the first sort of signal that something significant was happening out there. And a gentleman just brought me this today. So uh, you know, this is another example, kind of a bookend on the Scott Brown election to just how dramatically Things are changing. You know, if Barney Frank is in trouble, boy, there's something really significant happening out there. And of course, we're seeing all kinds of evidence about that. Um, so let me just talk about. Let me just. I just want sure. to talk about just kind of some of the themes that we're seeing that that help fuel all this. Um, I'll start off with just saying the obvious, which is that we had an historic, transcendent. Uh, campaign with Barack Obama. And uh, one of the parallels that occurred to me as I was watching that is I I had an opportunity to do earlier in my career a a lot of uh, international elections. I worked in uh, in Africa and South America and some other places around the world and particularly in places where there were emerging democracies in third world where people were experiencing democracy for the first time. You'd see the, these elections happen, and, and the the level of uh, hope that people experience in terms of the changes that they expected to see in their societies were never met. I mean, it was impossible to make these these uh, transitions to to a democratic society and and unfortunately, very often than not very quickly after that they'd return to a tyrannical regime or or some sort of militaristic uh, government so there was There was no way that uh, the Barack Obama even you know uh, let's take some of the things that have happened off the table. Uh, people just uh, uh, saw Barack Obama a transcendent figure and put all their hopes and dreams and by the way, this happens a lot in elections too. People even believed in things that he didn't say. in other words, they just saw him as a vessel for their hope and and even if even if they weren't watching closely or listening closely, they just believed that he believed what they believed. And so things were bound to come back to earth. And then you stack on top of that uh, the the fiscal crisis that we've had, uh, all the other calamities that uh, that, uh, this president has faced. And I think you could argue that, historically speaking, he's faced challenges unlike any other president. But I also believe that Given the complexity of our, of our of the world we live in today, uh, that it, I don't think we'll ever see a popular president again. Uh, I think it's just the nature of the world we live in, and the job is uh, is, is overwhelming for any president in good times. But uh, but we live in very complex times. We live in very dangerous times. So you've got tr- uh, incredibly difficult international. Uh, National security issues you're dealing with. You've got structural changes in our domestic economic front that we'll be dealing with for years. So, and put on top of that, uh, the media culture that we have to deal with now, which is 24 hours, multiple channels, uh, and and then we have uh, this incredibly hyperpartisan environment now that that we could spend a whole hour just talking about that and I've been thinking a lot about that and trying to work on that. But because of the 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 there is media profit in in, in promoting division and the parties themselves have gotten to a point where you get punished for working with the other side. Uh, if you if you deign to have a meeting with somebody I mean they don't even meet in Washington anymore. I mean, they used to have lunches, bipartisan lunches. They don't even do that anymore. Because, and if you do that, you get punished by the party bosses, and you'll get a primary opponent that they'll go out and find for you. Uh, so, uh, I'm just going to take off a few things, Alex, here that we're seeing. So, the fundamental thing that we're seeing is a complete breakdown in trust of government and politicians. And these numbers are astonishing. It's like 70% of the American voters just don't don't have fundamental trust in their government anymore. Uh, That's translated into tremendous voter anger and frustration. We've seen a rebirth of the citizen politician, um, which in many ways goes back to to our founding idea, which is a good trend, I think. The thing that's bothered me about politics and and, uh, recent politics is that, as I've watched, we have a system now that that 's become so poisonous that uh, that good people are leaving politics and it 's not attracting good people to get in and, and who can blame I mean who would want to go run in this environment? Uh, I was talking to Christine Heenan earlier this morning who 's doing your public affairs here and and she was a, she made the,
2: uh, the
0: the observation, which I think was a great one. Imagine any other think about the the weight of Political advertising, let's just, I'll be conservative, 75% of which is harshly negative. Um, think of that the kind of advertising you saw about aspirin or anything else, you know, would you, or, or any, other, uh, any other profession. Say you saw that about the medical profession, about doctors. People were saying that about the doctors that you go to. Can you imagine? I mean, nobody would get health care, right? I mean, you wouldn't go to your doctor. These horrible people out there. So, uh, we have a system that is sending good people like Evan Bayh out of the U.S. Senate, uh, and and I worry that it doesn't attract good people. But, but hopefully we'll we'll get to a place, and we're beginning to see some of it in this environment. I, uh, there's there's a lot of good and a lot of bad that's going to come out of the current environment. I think, but. Um, there was a notion once of the citizen politician, not people who don't spend their lives in politics and don't need the mirror of politics to reflect who they are, which I think is the case with a lot of people there now. Uh, the people who have, done, have have lived lives, they've gone out and they've, they've had a career, they've, they've done some kind of public service, whatever it might be, that expands their, their sort of value system and their experience so that when they come to public office, they bring something else to the table. There's a hunger for authenticity, and uh, this again I think is, this goes to the whole trust issue. People just automatically in politics today think they're being lied to by whoever they're seeing or whatever political advertising. So, in uh, I think it is a uh, it's a huge asset and it's, it's, it's a huge hunger that needs to be fed for voters to give them any notion that you can of authenticity. In other words that uh, Everything is so prepackaged now that people just start off thinking that that the politicians are manufactured or they're being lied to. So any way that you can break through that, to suggest that that you're just a real uh, person—that sounds kind of silly—but but if I'm doing when I'm doing campaigns, uh, I try not to script people. I try and find documentary moments where we can reflect some real passion about who they are, what they believe, Uh, and I think that. Uh, ways in which office holders can do that helps tie a bind to voters that, that's been broken. Um, you know, we both parties have created, you know, literally enemies, enemies lists on both sides. We're seeing the rise of the mama grizzlies on the Republican side, the, the whole Sarah Palin phenomenon, um, which has led to demonization of the nuts and sluts on the Republican side, and where we even had the National Organization for Women Uh, affirming what uh, Jerry Brown said about Meg Whitman being a whore. Any time you have now coming out to reaffirm somebody calling a whore, that's a pretty pretty amazing situation. Uh, The mainstream media is dying, and uh, that's a fascinating uh, evolution. Um, It's crumbling and it's crumbling fast, and uh, the, the consequences are unclear as of yet. But, but one of the problems with what's happening is that you see people like Sarah Palin using new media to create walls with, uh, uh, with, with, with keeping out mainstream media and any sort of interaction. In other words, politicians like Sarah Palin are taking complete control of their communication, and it's one way. She just twitters. She doesn't have any interaction with press or very little. And all she does is she twitters up whatever she wants to say. And it gets covered by the press. And she's a complete object of fascination and a huge glittering object. But increasingly, you see not just Sarah Palin, but others are saying, well, guy, you know, if she doesn't have to talk to anybody, why should I have to talk to anybody? And this is a great way of controlling my press. Because I'll just say what I want to say. And I don't have to answer any pesky follow-up questions. I just put it on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, so that's, that's part of the evolution that's happening as mainstream media is dying. I know you're doing a lot of thinking about this, Alex. Um, increasing influence of uh, outside money. And this is phenomenal what's happening. And it's, uh, uh, I've, I've I, this is something I've been thinking about and talking about and complaining about for a long time. And it's just amazing to me that it's gotten worse rather than better. We had a recent Supreme Court ruling Uh, called Citizens United that shockingly basically came out and said corporations need more influence and they need more money in the political process. Like they don't have enough influence or money as it is. Um, And we're seeing the consequences of that decision where, uh, I I, I don't recall off the top of my head the, 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 the gross numbers, but I can tell you anecdotally and generally that we have, We now have a situation i'll just take Colorado as an example. Colorado has a very uh i mean it's it's kind of a the classic bellwether it's a classic bellwether red to blue blue to red state i mean ultimately very purple. It went from um, almost all republican officeholders to almost all democratic officeholders in just one cycle and now there's a Senate race there that's that's about tied but uh, my point is that in that Senate race, the, the individual candidates are spending, I don't know, let's just say $3 million apiece so far. But outside interests have spent like 15. So the campaigns themselves are being outspent by money that is coming in from outside the state that is swamping and dwarfing the money that they're spending. So that basically, not just basically, but in reality, the campaigns aren't running their campaigns, somebody else is running their campaigns. You have, let's just say, the Chamber of Commerce and the unions are basically outspending the campaigns themselves by four or five to one so that it's really a race of special interests. And, uh, and, and so there's no, it's no it, sh- it should be no surprise that voters feel a complete broken trust because they don't feel they have any franchise anymore. They don't feel like they can affect elections anymore. They feel like, and it's true, that outside money and is, is are buying these elections. And so their response is, well, why should I even participate if these huge moneyed interests are basically controlling elections? So I, I'm, I'm a strong advocate of, of radical campaign finance reform. It's what initially attracted me to John McCain. Of course, his, it's his work that was thrown out by the Supreme Court recently. Um, and, but there's, there's some reforms that are going on, something called the Fair Elections Now Act, and uh, which is a start. But I actually think we need a, a constitutional convention through Article Five of the Constitution to go the state route, which I think is a, re- a really interesting way to go because Congress won't w- simply won't uh, won't fix itself. So we're going to have to go around Congress to do it. I think ultimately. Um, just a couple more things, Alex, and then we can throw it up to some Good. questions. Um, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see that uh, how the numbers have changed for, for President Obama, uh, and, and I'll just take, his, you know, one of his core constituencies, the most one of, and, and arguably the most important young voters uh, for President Obama. Sixty-three uh, percent of voters under 34 say Obama has not changed D.C. or made it worse. And that's just astounding to me. And uh, of overall voters, only 26 believe that Obama uh, has promised to end the of business as usual in DC. And uh, finally, I'll just say the voter engagement. Anger, we used to see uh, this disengagement and disenfranchisement translated often into apathy. But voters are so upset right now. And this is economically driven. I mean, People don't have jobs. They don't have paychecks. There's enormous anxiety. So now the anger is translating into action. And that's why we're seeing, I think, this big Tea Party uh, response. so that's the big story of this election as the Tea Party. I think the, the bigger story is going to be what happens after the election, how the Republicans govern with the Tea Party. I think a huge train wreck is coming in terms of it's hard to imagine things will be worse in Washington, but I think they're going to be. And I think ultimately that that's going to translate into something very exciting, which I think is going to be a third party uh, candidacy in 2012.
2: Well, I want to ask the first question, and I want you to pick up just where you left off. I want you to imagine uh, one scenario in which for whatever reasons the Democrats keep control of both houses, and one scenario in which they do not. They lose one or both even. How do you, and I'm talking now, put your campaign management hat on, and talk about the one year, because that next year is going to be the one in which the Republicans are going to have to pretty much start seriously deciding who they're going to put up for 2012 and how they're going to present for the 2012 presidential elections. Mm-hmm. What, what, what difference does it make about the, what, does Congress and the control of Congress affect that a lot, a little? What do you
0: it affects th- it a, 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 in a big, big way and uh, I, I know that this is not at the end of the day what the President really wants. But politically, the best thing that could, ha- that could happen for President Obama is for the Republicans to win the House and/or the Senate, and, I, and I, it seems pretty clear that, that Republicans will at least win the House, probably not the Senate. But this is, this is what helped Bill uh, recall uh, Bill Clinton's reelection in '96. He used the Republican Bob Dole Gingrich Congress to run against. It's hard. It, it's. It, it, the economy may rebound, but I think most, uh, most economists and, and, and thinkers uh, who are looking carefully at this don't think there's going to be any quick economic recovery. I mean, it, it may recover, but it's likely to be very, very slow. So it's, it's, it's hard to see that Obama will be able to sort of run on an economic, it won't be morning in America, uh, clearly. But if he has a Republican Congress to share responsibility with to say, okay, well, what did you guys do? And point to Leader Boehner or whoever it might be to say, okay, you know, we had a shared responsibility here, what did you guys do? That'll, that'll help. Now, if the Democrats keep both houses, there'll probably still be paralysis, but there'll be nobody to blame but the Democrats. So, in some ways, at least in terms of 2012, it's going to be a good thing for President Obama, for the Republicans to win the House.
2: And would you imagine if, say, the, the House goes Republican, that we we're going to see, like, endless hearings and inquiries and investigations and that kind of thing? Or is that not the way you...
0: I think that the... I, I'm, I hope that that notion has been overplayed. Uh, uh, I think it'd be a huge mistake. I think it'd be a huge mistake. I mean, that's not what voters want. Uh, the uh, but but I know that the, the, I forget who it is that will have jurisdictional control over that, but
2: uh, I hope that they show some restraint. So let's just say hypothetically <coughs> that they do take the, the House. Mm-hmm. So what do they do? What do they do? I'm talking about the Republicans now.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully they'll look to people like Paul Ryan and some of the, 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 the innovative thinkers. Uh, The best thing that could happen would be for them, well this is the best thing that could happen, but I'm almost certain it won't happen. The best thing that could happen would be for both the President and the leadership of the Republican House to recognize that it's in their best interest to forge an alliance and really work together on some big things. Uh, Unfortunately, and this is a product of the Tea Party, uh, I think that it's going to go just the reverse direction. And I think that Republicans are going to draw a line in the sand, and they're going to be uncooperative. And the same sort of thing is going to happen on the Democratic side. Let me give you an example. Uh, the, the, the commission that this, this president-appointed fiscal commission is going to report out in December about what we need to do to fix our fiscal crisis. This is a footnote on this, just to show you how screwed up things are in Washington. The Senate would not even agree to study this issue. That's how bad it is. Not act on it. They wouldn't agree to study it. So the president had to appoint a special commission. And there's, a, there's actually two commissions. There's an Alice Rivlin commission, and there's a president's commission. But they're going to report out in, uh, in late November and December their findings. Now, it, it seems obvious to me and to most people looking at this that they're going to conclude two things. We need more revenue, and we need to cut spending. All right. And uh, and unfortunately, I think given the way these elections are going and the Tea Party influence, the Republicans are going to say, hell no, we're not going to raise a single dime. And the Democrats are going to say, hell no, we're not going to cut a single penny in spending. And we will have this paralyzed situation. But the politics of this, just a quick example of, again, how broken it is. Mitch Daniels, who I think is a really interesting guy, he's a governor of Indiana, prospective candidate for president in 2012 on the Republican side, a really deep thinker and has done a lot of amazing things with the budget in Indiana, been very successful under difficult circumstances. A great story. He came to Washington a week ago, gave a speech, and it was at the Hudson Institute. And the founder of the Hudson Institute a very, was a really a brilliant genius policy thinker. And it, it at one point, he had talked about the idea, just the idea of a VAT tax specifically. And so Daniels just raised, he was at the Institute and raised this idea of the VAT tax and said, well this is an interesting thing, you know, maybe we should look at this. Well, he got incinerated the next day. I mean, absolutely incinerated. He was compared to, by a leading Republican advocate, Grover Norquist, a big anti-tax guy, he compared Mitch Daniels to a crystal meth abuser and a Nazi warner actor.
2: <laughs> That's where we yeah, are. but what else? <laughs> Okay, one last quick question. If you were betting, Republican Party nominee for President
0: 2012. Um, i have to, I have to balance hope versus reality. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd love to see somebody like Mitch Daniels or somebody interesting that comes, that's not on the sort of A-level uh, right now. But maybe John Thune is interesting. Uh, Mitch Daniels, uh, Bobby Jindal, I think, is a great governor of Louisiana. Those are interesting characters. I think it's... The establishment candidate is Mitt Romney. I mean, he's the guy who's done it before. who's raising all the money. He's, he is the establishment candidate, which usually happens in the Republican Party. We usually elect the establishment guy. So, if you were betting money, you'd bet on, on, on uh, Romney. But here's the interesting thing, and the, sc- the scary thing, in my view. You look at what happened in Delaware. You look at what happened with the recent Tea Party elections. You look at the demographic of those voters on the Republican side. Those are Sarah Palin voters. Now, if they are energized like they were now in 2011, and you think about Sarah Palin, if she runs, and she's now cracked the door open on that. And once you crack the door open, it's almost impossible to close. So if she runs, which I think she's likely to do now, you can see a pretty clear pathway for her to win Iowa for her to win South Carolina, which are two of the first three primary states in the Republican Party. You win those two states, you're well on your way to the nomination. So there's a case to be made that Sarah Palin could win the Republican nomination and then lose the general election.
2: On that note, uh, we are recording this. I would ask if you have a question, and I hope you do. There's a a mic here and a mic there. Would you just go to the mic so that we can uh, uh, record effectively? Yes. Uh, Mike, uh, do I have to introduce myself? Sure. Yeah, I Emanuel Hooper, actually I work at uh, at FERC for the Energy Commission. I was to Mr. Oh, Jim really? Wow. Yes. What's going to so, happen? <laughs> yes, I'm flying back tonight. So <laughs> uh, I've seen the inside of Washington as well. I guess one of the challenges is this uh, change on the landscape. That is, um, to what extent do you think the, the deficit, the national debt, and the uh, health care uh, energize this new Tea Party movement? And do you think in the next 10 years, uh, assuming we, Hopefully, if we solve these two issues, uh, would this enthusiasm go away, or is that going to be a, the issue?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that the uh, it, it's interesting, because usually in, in politics, the debt and the deficit have not been really drivers of voter uh, concern, passion, or activity. But I've seen anecdotally, but also in a lot of research, recently, that, that it's becoming more of a concern to, to voters, that they actually care about the deficit, mm-hmm. uh, want something done about it, and I think it is, it is, it is a, a driving factor in Tea Party mm-hmm. uh, uh, thinking. So I, I, my hope is that despite what I just said about the Fiscal Commission and how the parties will go to the side, uh, I do think that, I think that people are getting really serious about it. I think we're reaching you know, this point where it's, it's so, the chasm is so deep, people are really saying, you know what, this really is a crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not something down the road, it's happening right now, and if we don't address it right now with significant uh, 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 changes in, in our, our benefits and uh, legacy uh, 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 social programs, what have you, that it's going to be a big problem, and and by the way, it was interesting to watch what's happening in Britain this week with David Cameron, and the, and the you know they're making big big cuts over there, so uh, uh, maybe we'll look to them to see which which you know some good ideas about things that need to be done. But you also look at France, and they're having a meltdown. Well, great point. That's and look what happened in Greece, and uh, yeah, it, this is you know, and in France, this is just over raising the uh, retirement age from sixty to sixty-two, right? And, and I, you know, it just seems to me if we can't do something like, you know, as, as obvious as that, but then look what happens. I mean, yeah. people just go crazy. But, but those are the sort of things that we're going to have to do. Yes. My name's Philippa Thomas. I'm a Neiman Fellow. I work for the BBC, so I'm not sure if there's a job to go back to because the cuts hit us quite hard. <laughs> oh, is yesterday. that right? Is, this, is it hitting the BBC too? Yeah, team? yeah, even the BBC, Be- about 16% in real terms. Um, but I was fascinated by what you were saying about a third party candidate. Yeah. And that would have to be somebody probably campaigning from the outside, but credible. And I wanted to ask you about David Petraeus or any other names you thought might be likely. Uh, great question. I have a little list here, if I can find it. But, uh, <laughs> um, uh, the, I, I think that a, a, a third party, and it's not necessarily a party, but an alternative nominating process to elect a president is not just possible, but probable. Um, and that there are there are some things going on behind the scenes to make that happen that are very significant and most importantly knocking down the barriers to entry which are the ballot access issues in all the states but some people with significant resources are working hard now to make sure that those barriers are knocked down so you know if if people weren't held hostage to the primary processes which which uh uh, in, in recent elections we've seen, uh, you know, are, are, are driving toward the fringes in, in their nominees, uh, there's a huge appetite in the middle of America for a different alternative. And so I, I think if this if this nomination process, and I'll just call it a third way, is possible, I think you could see all kinds of, of people who'd want to run. Um, but. Petraeus is a name that's been mentioned, Mike Bloomberg. Uh, you know, And you think about a ticket like a Bloomberg Petraeus ticket, something like that. But, th- but these would be you know, people who either come from military or civilian life or elected politics. But, but I think we'd see a very different kind of, they wouldn't be people who've been hostage to the party apparatus uh, for years. And, and again, it goes back to my idea about authenticity. I think you'd find some very authentic Uh, Bill Moyers is an example. You know, people who could come from journalism could run. Um, So I think there's some really, really interesting possibilities that could come. And and, uh, uh, so uh, stand by for that. It's going to be interesting.
3: Just a quick supplement. They'd have to be geared up in time for the Iowa caucus, wouldn't they? So you'd have to see movement pretty quickly. Uh,
0: The... uh, I don't, think, I don't think that this would just be a traditional process that would have to go through the states like the parties are. Well, uh, Let me back up. The, even if it is, the answer is yes. There's significant activity going on right now that would make it
4: possible. Mm. Yes. Hello. Um, So, kind of keeping on the third party idea, this has been something that's been very interesting, um, you know, to me personally. I've talked with a lot of people up here about it as far as, you know, professors, different things. There, There is a lot of cynicism about whether, you know, this kind of um movement would happen i guess my question is kind of uh you know about the terms here because there's a third party candidate potential in 2012 is this i mean obviously you have some insider information that maybe we're not privy to is this something that would be more of a stable party apparatus that would say this is very much just for a candidate yeah okay based on that what do you think that changes or solves? Because it seems that many of the problems in our system are kind of, at at times, because we have a two-party system, does a third-party candidate radically redefine things or is it just a blip in the overall trend towards a hyper-partisan Washington that really can't solve our problems Assu-
2: assuming the, the party pres- nominee becomes president hypothetically yeah. is that what you're saying
4: and, and and even so like is there any is there would there be any push for like an actual third party apparatus and is that necessary to that might
0: solve be a, the I mean that's the, you, that that gets into sort of practical consequences and that might be a, a logical extension after that nomination and election uh, as you get into actual governing of a presidency but i think uh you know and uh, Dr. Patterson over here and I have had a conversation about this and he's he's uh, uh, logically cynical about <laughs> <laughs> about about how this might happen. Uh, but uh, but I think that I think it can happen and I think it's at least the, the the prospect of it will happen in 2012. And if it did happen, I think that it would happen in a way that it'd, that it'd be a huge wave. In other words, I, I think that it would be. This is not a situation where we get into an electoral college problem. I think it would win with a huge mandate. And if you go into a presidency with a, the with a, a, with a popular vote, a huge wave in the electoral votes, and that kind of a mandate, that just changes everything completely. I mean, then you have Republicans and Democrats on both sides will saying, "Well, I, I just got that message loud and clear, and if we don't change our behavior, then the next election cycle, we're going to be the ones on the outside." But that's, but that's where the whole idea of apparatus may come into play once you have the presidency and say, "Well, you know, look, we just elected a president. Maybe we can go elect a bunch of members of Mark,
2: the would this, would this, this third way include a portion at least of the Tea Party movement, or would it be well? That's that's an
0: interesting question. Uh, I, I, one thing that I believe strongly is that the Tea Party is just the tip of of a much bigger iceberg, uh, and that much bigger iceberg is what I'll just broadly call the Middle of America, and and this is. Again, I think 50% plus. I think it's a silent majority in America that feels like they're completely unrepresented and they don't have a voice in Washington. Um, So that, I think, and I think a lot, I think, let's just pick a random number. Say a quarter of the people who I think are identified with the Tea Party are simply identified with that movement because it's an alternative movement. But if there were something else that were more moderate, I think they'd leave in a second Mm -hmm. and and migrate that direction. Mm
2: There are two things that you said that, that I really take issue with on the basis of accuracy. You said that Jerry Brown called Meg Whitman a whore. My recollection is that it was a staffer, and Brown never said that. And can you identify any race in which the unions are outspending by two or three times what the campaign is spending?
0: Uh, yeah, the, the Colorado race. Is outspending the unions are outspending what, uh, what the candidate is, and you may be right on the and the Meg Whitman thing. I think it was a conversation. And Maybe it was Jerry Brown's wife, or but it was somebody or staffer.
2: I believe it was a staffer.
0: Okay, I stand corrected. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I didn't realize that it wasn't Jerry Brown. Good. He, thank you for correcting me. He, yeah.
2: Thank Appreciate you. it. Yes.
1: Uh, you noted the enthusiasm gap among young voters in the 2010 election, but looking forward to like 2020 or 2024. Um, What do you see from the millennial generation and how it's going to shape American politics? Because it's still a group that I think it was 62 or 63% approve of the president. Um, You know, it's the only group where a majority of voters think the president's economic policy is moving in the right direction. And do you think that's going to stick? And do you think that's going to bode well for the Democrats moving forward?
0: Uh, Do I think that the the, the young voters are going to stick with Obama or with Democrats in general? Uh,
1: Both, I guess.
0: Well, um, I, I'm just trying to remember the number that I said earlier, but
2: your statistics and his statistics seem yeah. to be very different.
1: I think um, your statistics were how many believe that he's changed Washington, right, right, which right. I think a lot of people said right. not yet. Yeah. But I think they were giving him, I think the the data basically says they're giving him a little bit more leeway or time right. than right. Right. older voters. They still support him. They still support him, but still don't think yep. he's changed okay. Washington.
0: Yeah. Well. I, I think naturally there's there's an affinity there, and uh, uh, just from a programmatic policy point of view, I think that that's, that's uh, uh, that they're likely to. I think a lot of them will come back to Obama in 2012, uh, but the enthusiasm is the real issue because I think that they don't feel. I think they feel like the president hasn't delivered on the on the sort of hope and change that they they anticipated. So I think we're going to see a fall off in a lot of those voters who just. Think well, you know. I've been let down, and uh, uh, but but I think that there's an opportunity to. Well, I think I think a third party effort could capture a lot of that energy, frankly. And it depends on obviously what the ticket would be. But I do I do see you know I see an element of uh, and I and I saw it when I was here, but I. it's confirmed over and over again that there I think that the your generation has kind of a different DNA and, and, a, and, a, and a promising one because you're not entirely cynical yet <laughs> and you think you can change the world and I, and I and I'm really glad to see that and there's a real civic kind of responsibility uh, that I sense in, in your generation so uh, and this is a typical midterm phenomena that, that uh, the party in power loses seats, So this is not something new. So I think there's, there's an opportunity for Obama to restore that and reinvigorate it. Although I do think, from an, just an historical high point of view, people are going to feel somewhat let down.
2: But what would be the, the, the invigoration factor if Sarah Palin is the nominee? Well, that would do it.
0: <laughs> that would do it, actually. If, if it's Sarah Palin and Barack Obama, I think, I think we'd see people lighting up the boards again. <laughs>
1: Um, can you talk a little bit about campaign finance reform and whether there's an opportunity to um, to build a sort of left-right or left-right center, whatever it is, uh, coalition around? I mean, we have a Supreme Court problem, but figuring out some way to get around the Supreme Court problem, is there an opportunity to unite people on the left and the right around that issue, understanding that that's sort of, in many ways, one of the fundamental drivers of the sort of undermining
0: our democracy? Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Run, run the question by me again. Just this question of oh, on the climate finance, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, the, the, what I find uh, compelling about the issue that it does have the, uh, the 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 potential to bring together people from both the left and the right. I mean, I think that I think that's a that's an issue on which it doesn't really have an ideological divide. Republicans have held on to and embraced that Supreme Court and the laws that are in existence because they see an advantage to it. But I think that, but that's elite sort of Republicans. It's not base Republicans. Most people on both sides of the aisle feel like money has completely broken the system, uh, taken over, uh, and, and is buying our politics. But the thing that's attractive to me about the idea of adopting Article 5 of the Constitution, and going, which means that you would you would uh, amend the Constitution by, through state constitutional conventions, is that that would bring together I mean, not just on this issue, but people could come together on line-item veto, whatever issues they wanted to, at these state constitutional conventions. Now, because of the way it's designed, not much is going to get through and ultimately be voted on, because you have to have, you know, three quarters of the states, and it's very—I mean, the framers made it very difficult to to pass one. But boy, what a what a circus of democracy that would be! I mean, I mean circus in a good way, in the sense that you'd be bringing together everybody with all their issues, campaign finance, or whatever all those issues that people feel Congress has been unable to address, they try and do through a Constitutional Convention, which would be interesting.
2: Lexi,
3: I had uh, two questions. One is on your prediction for 2012. What about Jeb Bush?
0: (laughs) Well, if, 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 if Jeb Bush's last name were anything other than Bush, there wouldn't even be a contest. I mean, he would be the odds on, I mean, he'd be nominated already. He is beloved by the Republican base; they love him. Um, but I mean, obviously, there's 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 legacy issues there that would be difficult for him to run. But but I don't think it's impossible that he could be, but that he could be tapped for vice president, but not the nominee. Can't happen.
3: Well, the, uh, wouldn't the problems with the Bush name be mostly in the in a general? Or you, th- you think that would be a problem in the primary as well?
0: I, yeah, I do. But I think that he recognizes that he could maybe win the primary, but he would be problematic in the general election right. so that he, he wouldn't run. I mean, and, he, and he's been pretty clear about that, that he doesn't want to run.
3: Um, my second question was about the going back to the millennials. There's a great, and you're probably familiar with it, but there's a great new Pew poll looking at the millennials, and it, it really shows that they're really quite different in a lot of ways from, from the rest of opinion on on politics and government and on the trust in government piece they stand out as they're they're the only people in the country who still trust government and that for some reason it's sort of hard to understand but it's probably related to the to the obama surge and they haven't
0: everything. been beated, re- beaten repeatedly yet. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well the, and the question is going back to the gentleman's question about you know what happens as this cohort moves through the you know gets older um, what, you know, does that, does the trust carry forward or does it, do they do get beaten into submission, what happens?
0: Well, I hope so. I, that's why I'm saying. I, I think that this, the Millennials are a really different generation with different DNA and, and I hope that they can change the system uh, and, and maintain that, that some level of trust um, because, uh, because we got to do it. And the, the, the changes that we need are so fundamental and the system is so broken. That I mean, that creates opportunity too. Uh, I mean, bec- the fix has become so self-evident that that finally action is, is compelled to to happen. And so, uh, like I said, the thing that surprises me is the lack of cynicism among millennials. And I hope that that's a, a feature that continues.
1: Thanks.
0: Yes. Good. Keep it. Um, good morning. Um, Keep the faith and carry on regardless.
5: <laughs>
1: my uh, my question is about the news media. You mentioned media and how it's such a changing landscape, and it's exciting and interesting and all. Um, what's it going to look like in 10 years? Where are we going to be going for our news, and are we all going to be in our own little compartments of the internet according to ideology or geography? Um, and whatever it is going to look like, is it going to be better?
0: Well, I'd be interested in the, the good Dr. Jones uh, response to that. I'll take a quick shot at it. Uh, We have a situation now where people get their information in silos. They can get whatever information they want that sort of uh, relates to our own interests, right? And and I think that that's uh, that's problematic because I think it, it ultimately tends to sort of push us towards extremes and we don't hear other information and you know our whole scope of information gets narrowed. I'm a victim of it myself. I mean I get up every morning and I hit six or seven websites, and they're all kind of lean conservative, you know, so I'm getting a a point of view that ten years ago I would have gotten a much broader point of view. Um, And also we have this this sort of uh, proliferation of information sources that all present themselves as legitimate, but many are not. And and I think ten years from now that what we may see is that over time people get burned so often by bad information like me saying Jerry Brown about <laughs> the or that uh, that um, we're going to go back to a situation a, a, a scenario where we have uh, media uh, outlets, w- uh, names establishment, whatever you want to call it uh, that become credible over time. in other words, you know we come to learn that X brand, provides reliable information after we've been getting bad information but so, but I do think it's going to take a long time for that kind of migration to happen where we'll go from you know a thousand sources of information right now and over time because of competition and because of a a a, a desire for legitimacy and credibility you know 10 years from now that may be 100 as we force out the market kind of or maybe 50 and those they may not look anything like they do today and it may not be anything like mainstream media and it could be you know, the, the bloggers that survive are the ones who are really good. They're really smart, they're really capable, and they, they put out legitimate, credible information that holds up over time. Mr. you're your thinking.
2: Um, I would say this. I believe in 10 years there will be still commercial, uh, mainstream news media organizations that will be doing essentially what they do now in terms of being professional journalists reporting news they will also be heavily laced with with bloggers and such who are who will then interpret you know the the information that they gather. The problem with the with much of what is produced outside that realm is that it's not reported news. It's more just assertions and analysis. And that that core of information that has to be reported is something that I think a commercial uh, or nonprofit sponsored but some other mechanism somehow or other I believe professional journalism will still have a significant role but there's no question that we're going to live in in silos to an extent but that increasingly people certainly of your generation and increasingly older are very very media literate sensitive to being manipulated I think it's very interesting that the gigantic amount of the money that is being spent by these inst- like unions and Ch- Chamber of Commerce and so forth is on negative advertising on television. It's something right out of, you know, 1968 or something. I mean it, it really is a a vehicle that is one that is uh, tried and true, attacking and being negative. And that I think has become the the sort of the the, the the perception of many people that you can't rely on that and that that is not necessarily authentic and trustworthy the way the way Mark was describing. I think that that there is going to be a priority and a value put on something that you can believe as, an, as a source of what the facts and truth are. I think, for instance, Wikipedia is going to play a huge role as a news entity because it is a it is emerging as this vehicle that is an arbiter of truth because of the crowdsourcing, but it's all derivative. It doesn't do original reporting, but it will be this kind of place that will probably be the default for finding out what, what facts are about things and how much facts are relevant of course is something that is a, another question because so much of it is not rational, it's emotional and it's, it's you know circumstantial. So, I mean, I don't, my, look, we had, uh, we had Peter Hart here uh, a few weeks ago, and he said, if you want to demonstrate how unlikely and unpredictable the world is, try this. And he put on a screen Bill and Hillary Clinton, Tipper and Al Gore, and John and Elizabeth uh, Edwards. And he said, if 10 years ago you'd been given a chance to pick the couple that would still be
3: married. <laughs>
4: That's
2: good, that's good. Well, I think that that, uh, uh, that demonstrates that what I know and what the, the accuracy of my, my vision of the future is just as accurate as my choice of that, you know, who would be, who, that's, that's who would be married and not very good, in other words, so who knows?
1: So it at least sounds like you think we'll figure it out, which, yes, I, I th- guess.
2: I think it's too, I think it's sort of like Mark. I think it's too important not to figure so, out. And I think, honestly, people recognize that these institutions are important. Uh, because they, they want some kind of reliable factual, even if they hate the media, which of course they do. Everyone does. But they still allow the media to shape a vision of reality that's capable of changing opinions, which is what happened, for instance, with the war in Iraq.
1: So being idealistic isn't just the domain of no. us young people, huh? There are a few
2: other fools like us. So, <laughs> yes.
5: Well, I just have a question about the middle of America and the enthusiasm gap. And I lived in Pittsburgh during the 2008 election. And I didn't perceive the Tea Party. I I met people who were going to these Tea Party meetings in spring of 2009. Mm -hmm. I didn't perceive them as these loony people in funny hats, as racists. Um, Just individuals I met, like there were some um, trial lawyers who suddenly just pulled all their money out of the stock market in January 2009 and were very worried about financial issues. There were uh, people with small businesses who were Democrats actually, Clinton Democrats, who and I felt like the enthusiasm was almost an anti-Obama enthusiasm springing from the proposed health care plan, the proposed budget, Mm -hmm. stimulus. Mm -hmm. I I feel like the McCain, McCain and Palin almost, you know, canceled each other out. In some ways, drew on competing loyalties for mm-hmm. the Repu- in the Republican. So wh-
2: what election. is your question
5: though? Oh, so my question is, there was an enthusiasm gap for McCain,
2: yeah. during
5: in the Repu- in the election in 2008. There was an enthusiasm for Obama, um, and yet the Republicans were spending too much money. We already had the TARP. Yeah.
2: So the question.
5: But then. In January, suddenly the enthusiasm shifted to an anti-Obama enthusiasm. I guess I'm wondering why, if financial issues were so important to these people, um, they, they weren't up in arms before
3: yeah.
5: uh, when, when we were spending too much money with the war and the tarp, but yeah. suddenly this, this, this is one of the driving forces of the, the Tea Party. and it's. Yeah.
0: Got the enthusiasm. Well, uh, let me there's a couple of things I'll mention in regard to that. First of all, your observation about Tea Party people not being you know a bunch of people with funny not hats, not all of them, in, you know, right, you know. right? Not all is accurate. And Howie Kurtz just wrote a great article a couple of days ago, talking about how the media has really mischaracterized the Tea Party and uh, uh, and this movement. But um, but there is a legitimate. Listen, a big part of the enthusiasm gap among Republicans was because Republicans hadn't been acting like Republicans. And they think that they've been spending too much. They, they think that President Bush spent was, you know, a, a big spender and didn't uh, embrace real fiscal reforms that he, that he should have. Uh, and, and so a lot of what's happening with the Tea Party is their their anger is as much at the Republicans as it is at anybody as it, at Obama. I mean, their the National Republican Senatorial Committee had eight sort of you know, good housekeeping seal candidates. All eight of them lost to Tea Party candidates. So they're sending a message to the Republican establishment as well as they are about Obama. So they're, they're not just mad at Democrats, they're mad at Republicans too. And that's, that's where their enthusiasm is coming from.
5: And there was that article in the, I think it was the New York Times recently, an op-ed, like two days ago, saying that the Tea Party is thought of as choosing Sarah Palin as their ideal candidate. But a recent survey showed that Chris Christie was doing better, or among Republicans, maybe it was. So there's a middle. But it's, it's just it's funny that the anger shifted over.
0: Well, like I said, I think that I, I could see very easily have somebody like Chris Christie. When we, uh, Somebody asked the question earlier about who could be the non. Chris Christie's actually a guy to watch. I mean, because I think he captures a lot of the Tea Party expression but also other Republicans would find Christie as a, as a preferable candidate to somebody like Sarah Palin. Let
2: me, we're out of time. Let me ask just one final question to put on the hat of managing Sarah Palin's campaign. <laughs> and if you were Sarah Palin and were looking at what outcome for this particular election would be best for you, is there one or is it either way?
0: the outcome for this election. This
2: election. I mean, Sarah Palin, is it good for Sarah Palin that the Republicans take the House, or is it good for Sarah Palin that they do not take either House? And so Barack Obama is still there, and the Tea Party movement has not achieved that goal of... uh, of I think that
0: Sarah Palin has already gotten inordinate uh, 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 more than her fair share of the credit for what's already happened, so I think it'd be it's going to be really good for her if Republicans win the House and/or the Senate. I mean, because a lot of it's going to be ascribed to the Palin factor, which, mm-hmm. which, you know, is arguably not really the case, but she'll get a lot of credit for it. And this again is the media sort of just going to the shiny object yeah. and saying, "Well, this is a you know look at the Sarah Palin factor here," when really it was a lot of other things happening. But for her political interests, if I'm her campaign manager, yeah, we want the House, we want the Senate, and we'll chalk it all up to Sarah Palin. Mm-hmm.
2: Mark, thank you, we loved having you come back.